You guys can turn to Genesis chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 this morning. Yes, miracles can happen. I'm excited to get into these chapters for you guys who've been hanging with us uh, in the study of Genesis that we started in the beginning of the year. We've been doing Romans also. This is foundational to our faith. You guys understand what God is laying out. This, these aren't just stories, something that happened. Bjorn, you are a servant. I love you. You want to come over to my house, bro? <laughs> no, that's a blessing. Hey, it popped up. Okay, can you guys remind me again? I, I got some announcements, but I don't want to do them right now. I like God's word. You guys like this picture? Yeah, I, I, I did it up a little bit, but I took the picture when we were down at the Ark Encounter. And this picture hits me because it makes me wonder those who heard this man Noah preach. You know, he was a preacher of righteousness. That's how the New Testament refers to him. He was a preacher. And how silly... His message was to those people. But what were they thinking as the rains began to come and things began to flood? You guys know we get to preach whether or not people choose to believe. We're just told to go share it. So Father, we want to give thanks for times like this that we can open your word. We know that these aren't just some stories that were made up to draw out things about you. No, this is truth. These are real accounts that you have chosen to uh, give to us that we can learn of who you are, your character. But what you desire and ask of us is your creation. So we would pray this morning that our hearts would be open that our ears would be ready to hear and to receive. We thank you, Lord, that you are alive, that there are things that we can do that please you and can also grieve you. We don't want to grieve you. We don't want to grieve your Holy Spirit this day. So please, Father, uh, just speak to us now. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. So the first six chapters, guys, we see God going from... uh, things being good to being grieved. That's what we've seen thus far. So after his creation, God saw everything that he made, and indeed, what are we told here? It was very good. But by chapter 6, the world God created was wicked. Okay, Um, They bought into the lies, um, and God was grieved that he made man. And the only way that God could save, uh, save us really was by destroying earth and starting over. So a man named Noah, what are we told about him thus far? He found something. Found favor, the grace of God, right? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was told uh, to build a boat, right? This ark, and to gather his wife and his sons and their wives, two of every kind of animal on the earth. Noah was obedient, That sounds a little crazy, Lord. Who cares? Noah was obedient. 
But Lord, you're asking me to do what? Never done that before. That sounds a little strange. It's good to obey the Lord. So, which we're this morning picking up in chapter 7. So if you haven't turned there yet, please turn to chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So what a moving scene here. You see, when it's time to board the ark, God doesn't tell Noah to go into the dark, but the ark, but to come into the ark. Did you guys catch that? Uh, underline that little thing, okay? Come into the ark, right? So the implication is what? God's already on board. I think that's pretty cool. So we call it Noah's Ark, but never doubt, guys, God's the captain of this vessel. Totally. Noah had no way to steer the vessel, okay? Were those in the instructions on building it? He wasn't to steer it. It was up to God to God the ark, right, and to dock it in the proper resting place. So guys, the next time that you feel that you lost control in your life and you can't navigate through the storm, remember who's on board, right? Guess who's steering the ship? Who's the captain of our salvation? It's Jesus Christ. He's going to get us where we need to go, guys. So in verse 2, God says to Noah, you shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, and keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So the clean animals will be used by Noah as sacrifices to God. Thus, he takes seven of the clean and then two of the unclean. Now, the distinctions of clean and unclean, I think it's cool that it's coming up this early in, uh, in the scriptures, is actually spelled out and quoted later for us in the law of Moses, but apparently they were known here by Noah. I think that's pretty cool. So God continues in verse 4. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So there were seven days, guys, uh, that the time for Noah uh, to board the ark into the time that the rain would start. So remember, he preached for how long? 120 years of preaching. How many people repented? Again, there were a lot of people. We think the numbers are similar to today. Billions of people. How many repented? 120 years. Remember, he preached that long and not one believed. So imagine the ridicule that was hurled at Noah from outside the ark. I want to share with you guys this uh, commentator by the name of Alexander McLaren. He writes this and I really liked it, so I'm going to share it with you. He said, For 120 years, the wits laughed. In the common sense people wandered. In the patient saint went on hammering and pitching at the ark. But one morning it began to rain. And by degrees, somehow, Noah did not seem quite such a fool. The jests would look different when the water was up to the knees of the jesters. And their sarcasms would stick in their throat as they drowned. So it is always and so it will be at the last great day when people awake too late to the conviction that they are outside the ark of safety. 
Verse 5 tells us, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wives, and his sons' wives, they went into the ark because the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now, I saw in the Ryrie uh, Study Bible, it estimates approximately 17,600 species of animals live on the earth today. That's a lot. So given some animals are larger than sheep and others smaller than sheep, we can use sheep as an average size of an animal. Thus, two of every unclean and seven of the clean would equal about 40,000 sheep. So that's not a bad estimate, is it? Um, Yeah, that was bad, sorry. (laughs) Since the ark, it could hold 1,000, or sorry, 125,280 sheep. Only 40 sheep would only take up about 28% of the ark. Think about that. So living room was plenty, okay, for the food, for Noah and his family. Plenty of room upon the ark. Uh, If you haven't gone to the ark, (laughs) it's huge. Do I got a picture? There. Look how big that guy is. I had three floors. We need to get back to that. Isn't that a cool picture? Well, we'll show the rainbow later. Anyways. Verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life. Did you guys catch that? All right. If you're getting a little older, underline that. In the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on the day of all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And again, rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So here's a description of flood mechanics. Verse 11, we're told that the windows of heaven were opened. So this is not simply rain, but it is gushing poured out upon planet earth. In addition, the fountains of the deep were broken up volcanic explosions released these pockets underground water subterranean springs in the ocean water was coming from above and below that's what it's telling from everywhere here water is coming so the flood altered the whole geology of the earth you know as we're told in second peter 3 6 the world that then existed perished being flooded with water So when Noah and his family exited the ark, they walked into a whole new environment. Nothing they had seen before. And let me suggest that this global flood is far better explanation for the geology than these evolutionary theories that we've been told and we're still sharing and teaching our children. Evolutionists suggest that the uh, topography and strata were formed by natural processes over very, very, very long periods of time. I'm sorry. Just look at the Grand Canyon, guys. I see varied geological formations there. I just can't believe that a little trickle called the Colorado River did all of that. I I can't buy in to that and also the river's actually running in the opposite direction which it all it's all formed by the way go figure anyways <laughs> to say the canyon started as a small gully you know well i'm not that gully a bull okay 
we need to think God's given us brains, guys. The Institute of Creation Research has done research on Mount St. Helens. They've documented how many geological structures once thought to have formed over millions of years occurred instantly in the result of a volcanic eruption. Just like that. And we've been taught, no, that took millions of years. And think about fossils, guys. The earth is a burial ground, okay? Yet, what makes fossils? Just think about it. What has to happen in order for a fossil to happen? (laughs) Um, Natural processes? Of course not. You guys know when a fish dies and falls down to the ocean floor, it doesn't turn into a fossil, okay? It gets eaten by scavengers. It is a good, or it's just going to decompose. Um, it deteriorates. It takes pressure. It takes compaction or compaction and instant burial. Okay, has to happen in order for a fossil uh, to form. So conditions present in the flood speak to that. That was instant, instant compact layers instantly. Why are we finding so? Many fossils all over the world. You know, how is that possible? Well, maybe a worldwide flood would explain all of that. Um, so the animal's, you know, body type, its, its mobility in water, its density, the, the habitat explains how high these animals could have climbed the floodwaters. We're finding fossils on top of these mountains. How is that possible? Unless there was a flood and they were compacted up that high. Anyways... We could talk for that uh, for a while, but there are wonderful articles online. I uh, encourage you guys to read up on that stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not going to talk about fossils. There's so many cool things you could talk about and look into. Let's look at verse 13. On the very same day, Noah, Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son were with them, entered the ark, and they and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after its kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark of Noah two by two, one, or of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all the flesh, they went into God, or as God commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. So notice the Lord himself closes the door, okay, and he shuts them in. So the Lord oversees their safety. And now the flood was on the earth 40 days. You guys know in scriptures, the number 40 is that of judgment, okay? We see that play out throughout scripture. The waters increased and they lifted up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So obviously this is a global flood and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So ancient history also attests to a worldwide flood. Guys, there's over 200 cultures today uh, that have a similar story. In 80, 80, or 88% of those mentioned a favored family. And of those stories, 70% of them survived on a boat. Now, verse 20, the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. So that's 15 cubits. That's 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. 
That's rad. So could be the, you know, prior to the flood, the earth's surface may have been fairly level, a few high hills. The mountains range here formed uh, by these tertential or tertential, you know, runoffs of all this rain, massive erosion taking place, receding floodwaters would reshape uh, the geology of the earth. Okay, everything would look radically different. Look at verse twenty-one with me. It says, "And all the flesh died and moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man." And in all whose nostrils the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all the living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed on the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So, it didn't matter how good of a swimmer, okay? Even if you were the best swimmer, okay? Olympian, you, you still were going to die in the flood. No one survived, guys. Human effort and ingenuity couldn't save a single one. The only folks that were saved were those who trusted in God's provision. And the same is true with us today. Depend on your own goodness and your merit, you're going to drown. Period. Only those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus will be saved. Actually, the ark paints a beautiful picture of Jesus. Think about the ark with me for a second. It was a trinity. How many decks did it have? Three, okay? But one boat. God was in the ark, and he was also in Jesus. Both Noah and Jesus were carpenters who built judgment-proof salvation, when Noah entered the ark, he left behind his old life and he received his new life. The same occurs for those who put their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there was only one ark and there's only one Savior. According to Genesis 6.16, guys, the ark had a single door. The door was in the side of the ark and it was out of the door that Noah came to repopulate the earth. I think likewise, guys, remember when Jesus was speared in the side and blood came gushing forth, okay? Right there, heaven's population, birth, saved. So finally, guys, it landed on Mount Ariat, okay? Um, the 17th of Nisan, the exact day of the year that Jesus rose from the dead. I think that's pretty cool. Both events marked new beginnings for man. Look at chapter 8 with me. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him on the ark, or in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. In the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mount or mountains of Ariat. Um, the ark drifted for five months, guys, okay? Until it rested on Mount Ariat. 
Today, the mountains in Ariat, it's 16,254-foot peak. <laughs> uh, that's northeast Turkey, okay, near the border where um, Iran, Armenia are. So to me, guys, I don't think it's an accident where God put the ark. I think there's a purpose. In fact, guys, I believe it's still the, probably at the same spot to this day in Ariat. Um, God could have set the ark in a valley, okay, where the boat could have been used for firewood or building other things for shelter, but he put it on the top of a 16,000-foot peak. Why? Okay, where it would be buried under ice and snow in order to preserve it, maybe as a last-day witness to the world. In 1840, guys, an earthquake blew... Uh, off the upper 10% uh, of Erat, there were sightings of a large wooden structure up there. Reported, you guys can look this up. In 1916, a Russian pilot sighted a man-made structure on the mountain. His sightings were confirmed by two parties, some soldiers, 1917. In 1943, U.S. pilots spotted structure. In 1955, French explorer uh, Fenard Navera uh, retrieved a piece of carved timber that dated back, guess how far? 4,500 years ago. The ark was exactly 4,500 years ago. Well, why don't we go up in there and get, the, get it? Well, there's political tensions, and their government lets nobody up on that mountain. Makes me wonder if they actually know what's up there. Why won't you let explorers come? Why aren't you allowed to enter in? Why is no one allowed to go up there? I don't know. Glacial ice on a mountaintop, guys. The region's uh, short summers. Uh, political tensions keep people from going. Um, anyways, I know it's true. I don't need to see a boat to believe it. But wouldn't that be a cool witness to the world? Oh, there was no global flood. There was no ark that big. Anyways, it's crazy, guys. People can see and still not believe. I've had non-believers around when we prayed around people and there was a healing, like literally God touching somebody, healing somebody, and you're still not going to believe. It's just crazy. A group of young people, someone manifested with a demon. Here's my buddy, demon-possessed, and you're not going to open yourself up to the truth of spiritual realities that, hey, this stuff is real. There really is a God. There is a Savior. You need to know him. The world can see. I mean, we can prove the Bible's legit, but how many excuses do we still make to do away with it? I mean, it stands the test of time. Only God can foretell the future. Today's prophesied more than any other time in history. All this stuff, like the Bible said, was going to happen. It's happening right before our eyes, and yet people don't believe. Sorry, verse 5. And the waters decrease continually or until the tenth month, in the tenth or in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, on the top of the mountains. So it came to pass that the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which had or he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So a raven, we know, is a scavenger, right? So if he found a carcass, he would feed, he would eat its flesh, he would never return. A dove lands only on dry ground, and 
Uh, the habits of these two birds were Noah's way of checking how far that the waters had receded upon the earth. Verse 9, it says, But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So now Noah waits seven days each time he sends the dove. Perhaps he was waiting for the seventh day, the Sabbath day to do this. It could be sending out a dove was an expression of his faith, maybe a part of worship. It tells us here, and it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up on the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So after nearly 11 months, get this guys, 11 months, okay? There's sometimes I'm on a boat for 11 minutes and I've had enough. Get me off, right? 11 months, Noah walks out on the deck and he surveys the new world. Verse 14 tells us, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. The same God who said, come in, says, now go out. And the same is true with us. God calls us to come to Christ. We come in, but after we grow and mature, the Lord instructs us to go out and to be fruitful. It's interesting, guys, that Noah entered the ark on the 10th day of the second month. Okay? He exited on the 27th day of the same month, a year later. So Noah was on the ark 377 days. Okay? Just over a year. 60% of the time he spent you know, sitting in the same place, okay, uh, waiting for the water to recede. Noah had to learn patience. He had to learn to wait on God. So guys, we need to learn to rest in God's promises and allow him to bring it to pass in his time, in his way. Remember the word for Noah? What did Noah mean? rest verse 17 bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth so noah went out he and his sons and his wives and his sons wives with him every animal every creeping thing every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So now Noah's first act when he steps off the ark um, on the dry land was to build an altar to make sacrifice and to worship God. It was man's sin that destroyed God's world, but the flood didn't destroy sin. Noah's first step was to offer a sacrifice for his sin. 
And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. So he was pleased with the sacrifice. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So even though God taught humanity a lesson, He knew that in the long run, another global judgment is inevitable. Okay? Every human being is born with a sin nature. And we're told here in verse 21, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay? The next time and the last time the earth will be judged, it's not going to be with flood, it's going to be with a fire. So in chapter 9 here, God makes a covenant with Noah suited for a post-flood world. Look at verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea they are given into your hand every moving thing that lives shall be food for you i have given you all things even as the green herbs but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. So pre prior flood, I couldn't have lived then. They were all vegetarians. It just praise God, we're born this side of the flood. They began to eat meat. Okay, that was a part of their diet now. So they were blessed with barbecue. Okay. Did you guys that's my commentary. Uh, <laughs> so evidently, guys, post uh, post flood people, uh, they would need an extra source of protein, okay? Why? Things have radically changed. And now the animals become a source for food for man. God instills within the animal kingdom this fear of humans now. Okay, verse 2 calls it fear or dread. So God continues with his covenant in verse 5. Surely your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. And from the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man. So, if a pit bull mauls a young child, it should be put down. That should never happen. It should never happen again. But capital punishment, it also applies to man. From the hand of every man's brother, we're told, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, catch it, in the image of God, he has made man. So since humans are made in God's image, murder is an attack on who? God, and it's deserving of death. So the institution of capital punishment was an essence of God establish, his establishment of human government. You see, government is God's arm to defend and protect human life and to execute capital punishment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek, right? but he's speaking when it comes to personal relationships. His instructions to us don't change the responsibility that God gives to governments. So in verse, oh, I'm going to say it real quick. It's a bummer that our government allows the murder of babies. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I read this. It's just like, come on, guys. Sorry. 
Verse 7, God instructs Noah and his descendants to reproduce. Uh, It says here, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish a covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth, with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God didn't rule out isolated floods, but he did promise that a global flood would never happen again. So I want to share with you guys just a few more lessons that we can learn from Noah Don't miss the boat. Don't forget that we're all on the same boat. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining until Noah got on the boat. Stay fit. When you're 600 years old, you might get assigned a really big job. Don't listen to your critics. Get on with what has to be done. Build your future on high ground. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. Speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. When you're stressed, float a while. The ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. The woodpeckers inside are a greater threat than the storm outside. No matter the storm, when God is with you, there's a rainbow waiting. A year ago, just over a year ago, it was before we were asked to close everything down because of the pandemic, I was at a four-day prayer summit some other pastors a smaller group than normal but God spoke and he spoke very clearly we didn't know what was coming around the corner we didn't know what 2020 was going to look like but the Lord spoke very clearly that he was going to do a new thing in his church globally not just locally here in Wisconsin from where all the pastors were But he was going to do a new thing. There was an upgrade that was needed. New software. And there was going to be new hardware given to the church and how we do things. I don't know, guys. I've never done church. I've never seen the church done the way it has this last year. Things have radically changed in the church. And God spoke much to us over those four days And we all came home with, we need to be prepared. We don't know what the future holds exactly. God is just speaking to us to be prepared because something's coming. And as I pray for our fellowship and what God's doing, I don't know what to do. There's decisions that need to be made on things. And I've felt the Lord say a whole lot of, slow down, wait, 
and prepare. Be preparing. Okay? Um, it was fun. Mark and Joe Vandermoss got to come back to church last week. And Mark's one of our elders, and he said last, last week, wow, 90, 90% of the people here, I don't know. God's doing a new thing in our church. It's fun. We have a lot of families that will be joining us, Lord willing, in the next you know, couple months here. But he said he was going to do a new thing, new hardware. He's brought in you guys here for a reason. He's adding to the church. Have we done anything special this last year? No. We're still doing what we've always done. We worship Jesus together. We love each other. We serve each other. We open his word and just boogie on through it. <laughs> and God's doing. But the church is growing when a lot of churches are actually down big time. Um, so I want to invite you guys to be praying. Be preparing. What is God up to? And are we going to be ready? Because I'll be honest with you guys, I don't feel like the church was ready for what shook out this last year. I see a lot of Christians still tripping about the state of the church today. I see a pandemic being thrown our way. In an opportunity to run and thrive, <laughs> I see the church buckled in a lot of ways. They tripped. Our hope doesn't change with what goes on in this world. The good news that we're told to share doesn't change in light of what goes on in this world. I want us to be a people that thrive. And I see good fruit from our church family here. There's good fruit here. I think part of it is because we're taught the word of God. We have a foundation. But it's our choice. Are we going to continue to stand upon the promises of God and what he's spoken? Or are we going to allow the world, the messages of this world, fear to get the best of us? Truthfully, guys, I'm glad this has happened. I think God's refining and making things known to the church. I think moving forward, church is going to be done a little differently for a lot of people. And I'm okay with that. But my plea to you guys this morning is let's be the church. For so long, especially here in the West, you know, it's about what we want to get out of church. That's never been the purpose of church. Okay? This, this is for training. God has given the church to equip you, the saints, me, to do the work of the ministry. That's why we're here. Is ministry still needed out there? Absolutely. But it begins in here. And if we aren't getting it and getting it right, how are we going to carry it and go out there into the world rightly? We've got to be doing what the Word says. And part of that is really loving each other, serving each other, loving one another, and then going home and doing it with our neighbors, and then going into this world and doing it. So what does God have for us locally? I'm not sure, but I know it's good. 
Why? Because I know the Lord holds the future. Sorry. So, be prepared. That's the word. Um, let's look at verse 12 here. We find a rainbow. How many of you guys like rainbows? I like rainbows. How, how many of you guys like rainbow flags? I can tell you guys, I've literally wept. I mean, just broken. Because I know Genesis. I understand the covenant that God has made. I know the significance of a rainbow. And the pride that now comes along with this symbol. Okay? It, it grieves me. My heart breaks. But I will also tell you, in recent years, my heart's changed in that way. Even though we, in our pride, think we know better than God, that He's wrong, what we feel is what should be right and true. People who suppress the truth, who blaspheme the living God, they're flying rainbows, guys. And now when I see these flags, I move to pray. Because I am a sinful man in need of a Savior. I am a prideful man in need of a Savior. And I don't see an occasional flag. I'm seeing more and more flags every day, it seems like. There's a lot of pride out there. But I know my Jesus, and I know my Jesus can save these prideful people. He can humble anybody, guys. When a person is humbled, they can find the grace of our God, which is able to save us. So I would encourage you guys, not that I've arrived or I do it right, but instead of being overly grieved, frustrated, and even angry, my heart breaks when I see these flags in a way where it's breaking for the people who fly them. And I would encourage you guys to start praying because you know the same God I know. You know that he came to seek and save the lost. They are very lost, very blind. Okay? And it's not just those who practice these things, but those who approve of it. That's our society. We're all jumping on board. We're even seeing the church jumping on board. You guys know how many church splits there are over this? It's ridiculous. So let's be a people of prayer. Because I've at least learned in my life when I genuinely care enough to pray, and then I'm diligent in that prayer, I'm willing to go and do something about it. I'm willing to step in and to love and to serve and to speak truth, to build those relationships. Because I can jump on my wall on Facebook and tell everybody what I think about stuff. But it's a whole other thing to engage and actually go have real conversations with people who are blind, lost, prideful, who are much like us but haven't been set free yet. 
So, I like the rainbow. Wouldn't it be cool if we just reclaimed it? I really have thought about flying a huge rainbow flag here at church. You know who would come? You guys know the name Freedom Fellowship carries a little something with it too? I've had a good handful of same-sex couples wanting to marry reach out just because of our name. Some of those conversations didn't go so well, but I've had three or four where we had ongoing conversations, and it's been good. Because for them to want to be married in a church, there's a little something, faith element, something God there. But is he Lord? Is he truly your creator? Is he the one calling the shots? You know, so I'm kind of thankful that we have that name and people want to reach out and see if I'll marry him. Fun, fun. All right. We got to get back into the Genesis here. And God said, the sign of the covenant, verse 12, which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So here God hangs up his bow in the clouds. Of course, the rainbow is this optical phenomenon where droplets of water, they reflect light and create this prism effect. The water reveals the colors, you know, a beautiful spectrum, all of them are there. Um, there may have been rainbows before the flood, okay? Perhaps you guys remember the mists that would come up in the garden, you know, maybe there were little colors there. Um, but since the flood, okay, uh, was the first time that it actually had rained, no human prior to Noah had ever seen a rainbow hanging in the clouds. That would have been a new thing, and that's pretty aw- Are you guys in awe of rainbows? I, I, I love them, you know. Um, the Hebrew word translated rainbow refers to a bow and arrow. So when God hung up the rainbow, in the sky, he was hanging up his bow of judgment. So the flood was over. Okay, he would never; it would never be repeated. We're told. So whenever Noah heard, you know, the clap of thunder and saw a bolt of lightning, he would have looked up and he would have seen the bow in the clouds, uh, pointed up, not down, to remind him that God's judgment was over. So the rainbow would uh, would serve as a reminder to all humanity that God's agenda from here on out until the end of the age will be salvation, not condemnation. Okay, So when you see the flags flying, know that our God is for salvation. Yet sin, sin must be judged. It will be condemned. Okay, But our God is a loving God desiring none to perish. Pray. Verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is a sign of the covenant which I will establish between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out on the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. 
And from these, the whole earth was populated. So verse 18 lists grandpa here, guys. Um, every one of us are from one of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Each, look around. We're family, guys. That's pretty cool. Oh, Sometimes you learn to bite your tongue. Um, think about this for a second. Um, I was reading an article. If they go back, like population trends, uh, there's people that actually study those. Um, and they look at the trends over the last century, and they say that 4,500 years ago would go back to exactly eight people from the current last 100 years of population trends that they're seeing. What? I'm not making this up. These people aren't believers either. Okay, They're just nerds that get into those kind of number stuff. I can't figure that stuff out. But hey, I'm like, I know what happened 4,500 years ago. That's pretty cool. And there were eight people? What? Get saved, world. Uh, so it's also interesting. Catch this. Anthropologist groups, okay, um, they, they speak to all the humans upon uh, planet Earth. They put them into three major categories. Caucasian, Negroid, and Oriental. Three. How many sons did Noah have? Three, right? Follow the genealogy of Noah's sons in chapter 10. And you're going to discover that there's a loosely parallel uh, to those three divisions, which I think is pretty cool. Japheth uh, migrated to, into Europe. Okay, he fathered the Caucasian nations. Shem's descendants moved to the east. There they birthed the Oriental and Semitic um, tribes. And then we have Ham's family to the south. The African nations were fathered by Ham. So the last 10 verses of Genesis 9, they tell a very sad story. Noah was a man of faith and obedience, but after walking with God for 600 years, one night he drops his guard and he figures, hey, a little wine won't hurt him. Instead of a glass or two, the guy gets drunk. Noah takes a drink, uh, and the drink takes Noah. See, here's the first mention of wine in the Bible, of alcohol in the Bible, and it leads a person to sin so noah may have forgotten his weakness his need for god and figured that hey i can handle a little temptation no problem guys pride will always set you up for a fall let me tell you that and it can happen to any of us noah goes in as a hero in a matter of minutes to a zero look at verse 20 noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he was drunk. He became uncovered at his tent. And Ham, the father of Kenan, saw his nakedness of his father, told his two sons, or his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, but they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. So at the very least here, guys, Ham was guilty of disrespect. He mocked, he insulted his dad in some way. Many scholars think that it was uh, much more sinister of a sin. But Noah wakes up, and he knows what his son had done to him. Not just said about him, but did to him. So there was some physical act that took place. 
Others think Ham um, castrated Noah. The Jewish Talmud suggests that idea. We don't know for sure. But it says here, then he said, cursed be Kenan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. It's interesting Ham's son is cursed and not Ham. We're not sure why. I read a bunch. I can't find out why. <laughs> okay. Um, it's possible Kenan participated in the act with his father. Don't know. Uh, possible that Noah knew Ham's evil influence on his son and knew that the son's uh, future would involve slavery. Ham's curse would be seen in future, uh, in the future uh, of his son. The Canaanites did eventually become the tribe of slaves. We know that. You guys remember when Joshua led the descendants uh, of Shem the Hebrews, into the land of Canaan to subdue its inhabitants, the Canaanites, right? Uh, they became slaves to their brethren. So it did play out here. Um, and they became uh, servants uh, there. One thing is for sure, guys, any attempt by white racists to apply the curse of Ham to black Africans is, you know, they try to justify slavery. That's a terrible misuse of Scripture, Okay? Some of Ham's descendants did settle in Africa, but the curse was on which son? Canaan. Not all of Ham's descendants. And Canaan didn't even have black skin. So if you've ever heard that, it is just horrible theology. Okay? Um, Noah also said in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem would be the father of Abraham, right? Um or father of Abraham and to the Jewish people. Uh, it also says here, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So the Gentiles will seek refuge in the blessing of Israel, and may Canaan be his servants. And Noah lived, we're told, or after the flood, 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Chapter 10, now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. So what comes next in chapter 10 is what we call the tribe, or the tribes of, or sorry, the table of nations. Um, and it shows uh, the distribution of Noah's descendants here throughout all post-flood earth. The sons of Japheth and Gomer uh, are the Germanic people, most likely. Magog, we know, is Russia. Medai, Jevin, um, or the Greeks, Tubal, Meshach, perhaps Mas uh, Moscow today, uh, Tyraz would be the Italians, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rithath, and uh, Tograma, the sons of Javin were Elisha, uh, Teresh, Kitma, or Kitman, and Dadim, or Dad Danim. And these are the coastland peoples of the Gentiles, and they were separated into their lands, everyone according to their language and according to their families and to their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, or Ethiopia. Uh, Mizram, or Egypt, okay? And put, it's a part of ancient Egypt, um, which is today Somalia. And Canaan, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, uh, Sabta, Rama and Sabtekiah. 
And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan, who were the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula. Then look at verse 8. It tells us, um, uh, this is Ham's, a parenthesis on Ham's genealogy here. It says, Cush begot Nimrod, okay? And he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, some of you guys are hunters. You're like, oh, I'm going to name my kid Nimrod. Don't do that. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Irch, Akkad, and Elna in the land of Shinar. Now, the name Nimrod means to rebel. You don't want a son named to rebel, right? And that's exactly what Nimrod did, Okay. After the flood, God hung up his bow and he hung it in the clouds to all to see. Now, God wanted to make peace, but Nimrod became the mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation reads, mighty hunger against the Lord. So the idea is that Nimrod went hunting to draw people away from God after himself. And no doubt, Nimrod was a skilled hunter of animals. Uh, and to think of prestige... Um, that that would produce at this time post-flood world right humans and animals they're no longer pals okay they're predators uh, they're looking at us as predators <laughs> Noah spent a year with the lions and tigers inside the ark but now there's a little rustle in the bushes people are freaking out what's there what's gonna eat me right so man's former furry friends uh, could be stalking him for dinner so a mighty hunter would be a hero, a hero would be a protector of the peoples and would be able to make very appealing promises. Tradition tells us that Nimrod also was the first human to domesticate horses um, and to bring animals under man's uh, dominion. So folks saw Nimrod as a savior, but in chapter 11, guys, he becomes the first antichrist that we find in the scriptures. Okay, his salvation is a false one. Look at verse 11. Um, from the land he went to Assyria and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela in the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Enimim, Lahabim, Naphtalim, Pathrizim, Kaslihim, from them came the Philistines and the Capridrim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn in health, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gijarite, the Hivite, the Flashlight, the <laughs> Archite, <laughs> the Sinite. Um, the Sinites might have been Chinese, some say. Um, the Ab uh, Averdite, the Zimmerite, the Hamanite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites uh, was from Sidon. Okay, so this would be the Lebanese coast. And they went towards Gerir, the south, as far as Gaza. Okay, you guys know Gaza, right? Then as you go towards Sodom, you guys know that's east of the Dead Sea, Gomorrah, uh, Adma, Zibium, and as far as Lasha. And these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Verse 21, the children were born to also Shem, the father of all children of Eber. Probably short for the Hebrews. Eber and the Hebrew, crossing over. Hebrew, crossing over, right? 
the brother of Japheth, the elder, the sons of Shem, were Elam, Asher, Asher, Aphrazak, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram were Uz. Job was in the land of Uz. There was Hall, Gather, and Mash. Apraxphat got Selah, and Selah begot Eber. And it's interesting, to Eber was born two sons. The names of one was Peleg. And for the days of the earth was divided. Today, geologists talk about these continents okay, that we have around the world, that they were all one land mass form at one time but is broken apart into the continents that we have today so if you take a quick look at the globe the shapes of the continents kind of fit okay uh it makes it easy to imagine that all these seven continents actually were together like a puzzle but the aftermath of the flood and i probably believe that that's what happened it moved everything uh drifted along in the oceans that's why we can see the kangaroos make it from Ararat into Australia, or why do we have Native Americans here in America? You know, um, it would just explain a lot. Um, Peleg's brothers' name were Joktan. Have you guys noticed this? When you ever have to read genealogies, I can't read by the way. Um, just be confident. Like, yeah, I know what it's saying. Just read it in confidence. Joktan begot Almondad. I don't know how to say these names. Selaf. Hazmer, Mavith, Jera, Hadram, Zula, Dikla, Obal, Ibemil, uh, Sheba, Orf, Ar, Havilah, and Jobab. That's per, perhaps Job. You guys ever read the book of Job? That could be Job right there. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwellings were the place of Misha, and you go towards Sephar is in the mountains of the east, and these were the sons of Shem, according to the families, according to the languages of their lands, according to their nations. These were the families and the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So I read all of that, and we get insight into only a few of these people who are long past. But it makes me think, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? What kind of legacy do I want to leave? You know, and I want to leave a Jesus one, guys. That's the legacy I want to leave behind. That's what I want to be known for. We can get caught up into a lot of things in this life. I want people to be able to say, hey, he believed Jesus, he loved Jesus, he served Jesus doesn't matter what you do, okay? What type of legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to leave to your children? What do you want to be remembered for? So, that was four chapters. Praise God. So next week we're in Romans 4. I want to encourage you guys to read ahead. I do want to just remember you guys, just remember... Um, the only way we are saved is by God's provision. When I consider Noah and the ark, <laughs> it was all God. It's what he provided. Are you going to trust in his provision or not?